there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. The question in the title of today's talk is, is chastity possible? Well, let me ask you a question. Is chastity optional for a Christian? Well, you know the answer to that question. It most certainly is not optional. So if you know that chastity is not an option, it is a command, then you know the answer to the question of the title. It is possible. Because it is always possible to do the will of God. Don't ever forget that. Nobody has ever failed to do the will of God because of lack of strength, lack of health, lack of time, or any other lack except the will to do it. God has created us with the freedom to choose to love him. And if we will to do his will, then God supplies the grace and the strength and the time and everything else that's necessary. So because we know that chastity is the will of God, we know that it is possible. The question is, do you want to be holy? You remember when Jesus spoke to a man who wanted to be healed, he asked him what seemed a strange question. He said, will you be made whole? Asking the incisive question, is this what you really want? Because this man had been sick for 38 years, and it's very easy to make a career out of one's infirmities. I think we're all tempted in some measure to cherish some weakness or some handicap or some terrible evil that has been perpetrated against us by somebody else, we cherish that we don't really want healing because this makes us an object of pity. And if we get healed, we're deprived of other people's attention. So the great question for all who call themselves Christians is, do I really want holiness? Do I want to be whole? And I'm sure that most of you know the famous quotation from St. Augustine. He said, he prayed early in his Christian life, Lord, make me holy, but not yet. We like the idea of being holy. We also like the idea of being able to do our own thing. So that is the big issue. It's not merely sexual purity. That is one area. But it is under the heading of the great area of holiness. Do you want to be like Jesus? 
Do you want purity? Now, any of you who might possibly have a Bible along with you, if you would turn to 1 Thessalonians 4, I want to read you a few verses there from verses 2 through 8. The Apostle Paul is writing to the Christians of Thessalonica, and he says, You know what orders we gave you in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is the will of God, that you should be holy. You must abstain from fornication. Now, fornication in its narrower meaning generally means extramarital sexual activity, either premarital or extramarital in the form of adultery. But it covers literally any kind of sexual sin. The word fornication is quite a broad term. So he says, this is the will of God, that you should be holy. You must abstain from fornication. That's the first thing he says under this heading of holiness. Each one of you must learn to gain mastery over his body, to hallow and honor it, not giving way to lust, like the pagans who are ignorant of God. And no man must do his brother wrong in this matter. And the footnote or alternate translation in my Bible says, or must overreach his brother in his business. No man must do his brother wrong in this matter or invade his rights, because as we told you before, with all emphasis, the Lord punishes all such offenses. For God called us to holiness, not to impurity. Therefore, anyone who flouts these rules is flouting not man, or may I add, not Elizabeth Elliot, but God, who bestows upon you his Holy Spirit. And I want to say right now, if you hear me say anything in this workshop that you do not think can be backed up with scripture, I expect to be challenged. There may be areas in which I will express an opinion, and I trust that I'll remember to make it clear that this is merely an opinion, and of course you're perfectly free to discard my opinions. I would hope that you would be much slower to discard what God says. So I've tried to think through these things on the basis of what God tells me in his word and to corroborate everything that I have said in my books from this word. Another passage, 1 Corinthians 6. Paul is writing here to the very corrupt church in Corinth. I'm told that the city of Corinth was a city of tremendous, blatant, open sexual sin. And the gods and the artwork and everything pointed to this pornographic obsession. So the people, the Christians in the city of Corinth were certainly not living in any ivory tower. They were in the midst of tremendous corruption of all kinds. And when Paul writes to them, this is what he says. Make no mistake, no fornicator or idolater, none who are guilty either of adultery or of homosexual perversion, no thieves or grabbers or drunkards or slanderers or swindlers will possess the kingdom of God. Now that would be enough to make some of us want to go out and hang ourselves if that's where he stopped. 
What does he say next? Such were some of you. He's writing, don't forget, to Christians. Such were some of you, fornicators, idolaters, guilty of adultery, of homosexual perversion, thieves, grabbers, drunkards, slanderers, and swindlers. None of them will possess the kingdom of God, but such were some of you. Now, how is that possible? Well, he goes on to say in verse 11, but you have been through the purifying waters. You have been dedicated to God and justified through the name of our Lord Jesus and the Spirit of our God. I am free to do anything, you say. Yes, but not everything is for my good. No doubt I am free to do anything, but I for one will not let anything make free with me. Food is for the belly, and the belly for food, you say. True. And one day God will put an end to both. But it is not true that the body is for lust. It is for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. God not only raised our Lord from the dead, he will also raise us by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are limbs and organs of Christ? Shall I then take from Christ his bodily parts and make them over to a harlot? Never. You surely know that anyone who links himself with a harlot becomes physically one with her, for scripture says the pair shall become one flesh. But he who links himself with Christ is one with him, spiritually. Shun fornication. Every other sin that a man can commit is outside the body, but the fornicator sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a shrine of the indwelling Holy Spirit, and the Spirit is God's gift to you? You do not belong to yourselves. You were bought at a price. Then honor God in your body. Could anything be more diametrically opposite from what the world is telling us every day with tremendous insistence and power than this passage? Every time you turn around, you hear the voices of the world, you see the billboards and the TV and the movies and the magazines telling you, if it feels good, do it. It's your body, you have a right to your body, you owe it to yourself, let it all hang out, have it your way. In all these maxims which have almost become a part of our ordinary vocabulary, we are being completely contradicted from, we are hearing the word of God contradicted. The Bible says you are not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore, honor God in your body. So the question of chastity is a question which applies to both the single and the married. Because chastity is not synonymous with virginity. And I do want to make that plain in case any of you have equated the two. Chastity is, of course, no sexual contact with anybody if you're not married. In that, case, in that sense, chastity and virginity are the same thing. But for the married person, we too are enjoined to be chaste and pure. The marriage bed is honorable, the scripture says, and the bed undefiled. But if anyone goes out 
and gets into somebody else's bed, then that's adultery, a form of sexual sin, and our chastity is thereby ruined. Now, I would be very naive if I thought that every single person that I'm speaking to this afternoon is a virgin. In the world in which we live, many thousands have given away that priceless gift that can only be given once. And some of you undoubtedly have squandered that gift on the wrong person. I want to say this afternoon just what Paul said. Such were some of you. But you are washed. You have been through the purifying waters. You are sanctified. And now, as the scripture tells us, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. So although God cannot physically restore your virginity any more than he is going to give you back a leg if your leg gets chopped off, God can restore your chastity. And to me, that's a wonderful word of hope for all who have, in fact, given it to the wrong person. You know, you don't lose your virginity. Nobody loses her virginity, his or her. You give it to somebody else. If you've been raped, that's another story. I don't think in God's eyes you have lost your virginity. You are still pure before him if you had no part in that act. But when you have chosen or slid into a sexual relationship outside of marriage, then you have, in fact, given away your virginity. Well, I want to tell you a little bit more about the story that I began last night. I told that I was not going to go into all the details last night, and I certainly am not going to go into all the details tonight, this afternoon, but you can read a great deal more about it in my book, uh, Passion and Purity. But back then, uh, when I was madly in love with this man that I didn't think I had a chance with, we had yearbooks in those days. I don't know whether you still have yearbooks at universities. You do. I see a lot of heads nodding. And it was our custom to get people's autographs in the yearbooks. And so when our yearbook came out, I was a senior and Jim was a junior, I very much wanted to get the autograph of this very handsome BTO, as I said, big time operator, or BMOC, big man on campus. So I joined a line of girls waiting for Jim Elliott's autograph. <laughs> and they were all as hopeful as I was, I'm sure, that he would put something besides just his name. He had a very flourishing signature. And to my great delight, I was trembling with hope, he signed his name, I could see that, and then he put something else underneath, which I couldn't see right away, and he shut the book and he handed it back to me. And I think you girls can imagine how long it took me to get, to find a page. <laughs> I thumbed through in frantic haste, I found the page, and it was a scripture reference. Well, I didn't have my Bible with me, so how long do you think it took me to get back to the dormitory to grab my Bible? <laughs> and. What I was hoping for was perhaps a message, maybe a cryptic message, which would give me some tiny shred of hope that maybe Jim had had some thoughts about me. Well, I was stunned when I found the passage. It says, a soldier on active service will not become entangled in civilian affairs. 
that's not the end. He must be wholly at his commanding officer's disposal. And that word holy is spelled W-H-O-L-L-Y. He must be totally, unreservedly at his commanding officer's disposal. Now that did give me a tiny shred of hope that maybe that message meant something for me. Maybe Jim had looked at me more than once, but then of course the thought entered, well maybe this is the verse he put in everybody's book. So I really don't have any reason to think it was a special message for me, but it also told me one more thing about Jim Elliott, which was the most important thing in the world. And that was that he had made up his mind that Jesus Christ was Lord of his life. He was not his own, any more than a soldier is when he's conscripted into the army. He belongs to the government. He belongs to that body of military men. And he has no rights whatsoever. He is under orders. And all he does is report and receive the orders and go out and do them. He doesn't have any input. He doesn't have any desires of his own that count. Well, it's not for nothing that the Holy Spirit chose military metaphors because there is a sense in which if we are going to be soldiers in God's army, then we turn over all the rights. And Jim Elliot had made this one final lifetime choice. I spoke last night about the question, what do you want more than anything else in the world? What is the pearl of great price to you? Is it holiness? Is it the knowledge of God? Is it true discipleship to Jesus Christ? If you have made that choice, then you must see to it that nothing and nobody deflects your attention from that single goal. A soldier on active service will not become entangled in civilian affairs. He must be wholly at his commanding officer's disposal. So everything else I have to say to you about the story of Jim Elliot and me, you must remember why we did all this. Sometimes I have spoken at great length and I've asked, answered all the questions I could possibly answer and then I've had people come up to me and say, say but do you really think everybody has to do it that way? Well, of course, I'm not going to say that everybody has to go through exactly this, the same process that Jim and I went through. But I certainly have to say that if you want to be holy, then you have to put yourself under orders to Jesus Christ. That is the motivation. And it is he who empowers us. The question is not, do I have to do this this way? Does God not want me to do that or the other thing? Will God not allow me to do this or that? The question is, do you love him? Do you want to be like him? Do you want to please him? What is it that will please the Lord? That is the question. And that really is the only question, isn't it? If we please the Lord, we will be walking in holiness and we will be growing daily in holiness. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And if you keep my commandments, the one who keeps my commandments, he it is that loves me, he says in John 14. 
and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. Do you want to live with Jesus? Then you have to do what he says. This is the will of God, that you should be holy. Young, young people are always asking me the question, well, how can I know the will of God? And there was a workshop on that this afternoon, wasn't there? I've written a book on the subject called A Slow and Certain Light. But the question of how you can know the will of God is answered, first of all, you've got to tell him in advance that you'll do what he says. You put yourself under his orders. Unless you put yourself under orders and make that a lifetime commitment, never again negotiable, then why should God tell you what his will is? His will, he has already told us, and sometimes I say this to students, I know what the will of God is for you. And they look at me, startled, and I say, look in First Thessalonians 4. It says, this is the will of God, that you should be holy. So anything that won't fit under that heading is not the will of God. So... Jim put 2 Timothy 2.4 in my yearbook, and I knew that here was a man who had made a final choice. And he was letting me know, and maybe all the other girls whose books he had signed, that neither they nor anybody else nor anything else in the whole world was going to deflect him from his purpose to be under his commanding officer's orders, to be at his disposal. So. That day when he invited me to go for a walk with him, we had attended a foreign missions fellowship breakfast that morning in a park, and almost everybody else had left, and he and I were among five or six people that were cleaning up the mess. And I think I was about the last person to dump a load of trash into the trash barrel, and Jim was sitting over here on a picnic table with two other kids that were good friends of mine, and he jumped down off the table, and he came over, and he said, can I walk you home? And I said, sure. I said, are Bill and Van going to come along too? He said, no. He said, they're deep into some discussion. He said, let's walk. So as we walked down the sidewalk, he suddenly startled me with these words. I think we need to get squared away how we feel about each other. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, what do you mean? What do I mean? You know what I mean. I'm in love with you. And we went back and said, well, let's not go back to the dorm. He said, let's walk back into the park and sit down for a while. So we walk, walked into the park. We sat on the grass. It was a very hot, sunny day. And we sat there for seven hours. And we s tried to sort through what God might be trying to say to us. And it would have been very easy, after we went through all this, to jump to the conclusion that God was telling us to get married. Because lo and behold, as we talked about the fact that each of us, unbeknownst to the other, had gone through a great struggle during that school year of saying, Lord, I will be a missionary, I'm glad to be a missionary, but I don't want to be a single missionary. And to my great astonishment, Jim had been in just as much of an agony as I had. He didn't want to be single either. But the work that he was particularly interested in was very primitive, pioneer jungle kind of work. And he had been told by older missionaries that this kind of work needed some single people who would commit themselves to the single life. And so Jim had said to the Lord, well, if that's what, me, what you want me to do, I'll stay single. But it wasn't easy. 
And as he struggled through coming to that position of, yes, Lord, God had given him scripture after scripture after scripture, which were exactly the same ones that he had given to me. The whole chapter of 1 Corinthians 7 on what it is to be single for the glory of God, to serve God, not to be distracted by marriage and all the responsibilities that marriage entails, that had been chewed over and prayed over and stewed over and cried over by both of us. We also discovered that we had been blessed and helped by the same hymns that we had memorized. And let me strongly urge you to get hold of an old hymn book, if you can, and memorize some of the older hymns because they are filled with prayers. They're quite different from the kinds of hymns that I've been hearing here. And I don't know most of these newer ones. And they're wonderful. I'm not knocking them. But they're a different kind. They're a different genre. And Jim and I had both been brought up in house, in homes where we sang hymns every day. In our family, we had family prayers every morning and every evening. And in the morning, we went into the living room, and either my father or my mother played the piano. And uh, we would sing straight through a hymn. We sang all the stanzas. And in that way, quite painlessly, we learned hymns by heart without effort. And we also learned theology that way. So among the hymns that had been very meaningful to me from the time I was in high school was one called Beneath the Cross of Jesus. I fain would take my stand, the shadow of a mighty rock within a weary land, a home within the wilderness, a rest upon the way, from the burning of the noontide heat and the burden of the day. And the second stanza says, I take, O cross, thy shadow from my abiding place. I ask no other sunshine than the sunshine of his face. And as a 14-year-old, I was sobered by those words. I thought, I'm lying if I say that. I ask no other sunshine than the sunshine of his face. I want all kinds of sunshine. I want all kinds of earthly joys and comforts and happinesses. But I made it my prayer, Lord, help me to ask no other sunshine than the sunshine of thy face. And so had Jim. I couldn't begin to tell you all the hymns and poems that we had learned. We both discovered that we were fans of Amy Carmichael, that missionary to India that I had mentioned, I think, last night. She was a woman whose own books had powerfully shaped my own spiritual life. And one of her poems says this, And shall I pray thee change thy will, my father, until it be according unto mine? But no, Lord, no. That never shall be. Rather, I pray thee, blend my human will with thine. I pray thee, hush the hurrying, eager longing. I pray thee, soothe the pangs of keen desire. See in my quiet places wishes thronging. Forbid them, Lord, purge, though it be with fire. And work in me to will and do thy pleasure, till all within me, peaceful, reconciled, tarry content my well-beloved's leisure. At last, at last, even as a weaned child. And Jim said to me, I am not asking you to marry me. I can't ask you to marry me. God has not given me any green light that I will ever be married. He said, I'm not asking you to make a commitment of any kind to me. 
We didn't even use the word relationship. That was a word that has only come back, come into the vocabulary of young people within the last two decades or so. In fact, he said, I'm not going to ask you to wait for me. He said, I am going to South America. You go ahead and follow God to Africa, which is where I thought I was going. He said, we're going to leave this in God's hands. And we were sitting that far apart, facing each other, sitting cross-legged on the grass. And so we talked, and we talked, and we talked. And although it would have been very easy for us to think, oh, well, we're both going to the mission field. It's easy for me to switch to South America, and surely God wants us to get married. Jim said, no, I'm not going to ask you for that. I'm not even going to ask for a commitment or for you to wait for me because I know that God has called me into pioneer jungle work. Maybe it will be necessary for me to do that for the rest of my life as a single man. So, in effect, he was saying, see you around. Well, he wasn't going to see me around for very long. We had about two weeks, I think, before my graduation. And during those two weeks, we did go for a number of walks together just to talk again about God's dealings. And one night we wandered, almost without realizing it, into a cemetery. And we seated ourselves on a convenient slab. And I said to Jim then, you know, I've been thinking about this whole thing of what it means to completely trust God for the desires which we have given back to him. If we decide to write to each other, which Jim had suggested we could do, isn't that sort of hanging on to it or taking it into our own hands? And there was a long silence. Jim was not excited at all about this suggestion of mine. And finally he said, you're right. The reason I know you're right is because this morning when I was reading my Bible, the story was of Abraham and Isaac. And he said, God asked Abraham and Isaac to give to him the most, uh, asked Abraham to give to him the most precious thing in his life, which was that beloved son Isaac through whom God's covenant promise was going to be fulfilled. And he asked him to put that son on the altar, to make a burnt offering of this son. And so he said, I asked God, what is the most precious thing in my life? And obviously the answer was you. And so he said, I, that's what I did. I put you on the altar. You are the most precious thing in my life. He said, I put you on the altar. And I said, Lord, here she is, and here she will stay, unless you do what you did for Isaac, for Abraham, and provide another sacrifice. So we sat again for a long time in silence. All our desires were toward each other, but not quite all. We still had one desire which overrode the rest, and that was holiness. We wanted to be like Jesus. We wanted to please him and to obey him. Suddenly we realized that the moon had risen behind us and was casting the shadow of a stone cross between us on that stone slab. Now you know how far apart we were sitting. Must have been two feet anyway. Here was a shadow of a cross between us, a tremendous sign, a seal from God that we had made the right decision. 
The cross must be between every relationship. Every relationship must be brought to the foot of that cross. All our desires, there's a verse in the Psalms which had also been very meaningful to me during that year, Psalm 84, 11. Lord, all my desire is before thee. And as I would cry and pray over Jim Elliot, I just spread out my desires. I said, Lord, you know what I want. I want this man. I want marriage. I want it desperately. I'm hungry for this man. And God reminded me of that passage in Deuteronomy 8 where Moses is reviewing the history of Israel. And he says to the children of Israel, you must remember all the way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness to test you and to find out if it was in your heart to love him and to obey his commandments. He made you hungry. He led you and he made you hungry in order that you might learn that man does not live by bread alone. And I don't think it would be irreverent to insert here, man does not live by sex alone. A legitimate human hunger, just as our hunger for bread is legitimate and human. But we must learn through hunger for physical things to eat spiritual food. We live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So often I hear, I have young people come to me and say, well, but you know, I've prayed that the Lord will take away this desire for this woman or for this man. I've prayed that the Lord would just make my desires dissipate if he doesn't want to bring us together in marriage. But it, it hasn't gone away, so doesn't this mean that the Lord wants us to get married? And then I have to point them to Deuteronomy 8. No, it doesn't necessarily mean that. God made the children of Israel hungry. They wanted leeks and onions and garlic and watermelon and fish like they had back in Egypt in their days of slavery. And God didn't give them those things. Very good things, aren't they? God-given things, leeks and onions and garlic and watermelon and fish. He took that all away and he gave them manna. They didn't want manna. But he said, I want you to learn to eat the bread from heaven. And so we committed our desires for God, to God, reminding ourselves and God that the desire above everything else, the thing that we wanted more than anything else in the world, the pearl of great price, was holiness. Identification with Jesus Christ in his death and in his resurrection. And don't ever forget, my dear sisters, that we are to be crucified with Christ. But God doesn't want us crucified only in order to be dead. He wants us to rise again in new life with him. Jesus was not crucified only in order to be dead. He descended into hell. He harrowed hell. He preached to the spirits in prison. But he rose again for our justification, for our sanctification, that we might be made holy. 
And so we have to die a thousand deaths. Paul says, I die daily. Every day I die, that the life also of Jesus might be manifest in my mortal flesh. And so I say to you this afternoon, I really believe that there is no more crucial area of spiritual testing for any young man or woman than the area of sex. It is the most powerful of emotions. It is the most confusing. It is the most potentially destructive in our lives. And it is there that Satan will see to it that you are challenged and that the battle is drawn up and the world is coming at us with unbelievable force to destroy us in that very place. Now, can we handle this by ourselves? Of course not. No more than a king with 10,000 soldiers can go against a king with 20,000. But don't ever forget, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Jesus Christ lives in me. He is my life. I am absolutely helpless without him. And it is not until we acknowledge our helplessness, our weakness, our total poverty, that we then lift up to him the empty cup, the receptacle for his grace. And we say, Lord, here's my cup. Fill it up. And God then gives us the grace to be faithful to the commitment that we have made to him. We don't make it to any human being in the sense that we make it to him. Tim and I covenanted with each other that we would never marry unless God gave us to each other. I could not imagine that I would ever marry anybody else if Jim didn't ask me to, mar didn't ask me to marry him. And Jim said to me, very frankly, he said, I don't know if I'll ever get married, but if I ever get married, I already know who the woman will be, that is, if she'll have me. But of course, he had no way of knowing whether I was going to wait for him or not, because I was not telling Jim that I was in love with him. My father always told my four brothers, don't ever tell a woman, I love you, until you are ready to say, will you marry me? And I took the lesson for myself that I would never tell a man that I loved him until he had said, will you marry me? Now, of course, my father was not Jim's father, and so Jim didn't get that kind of advice from his father, and so he had told me that he loved me, but then he made it very plain that I was not to hang around waiting for him to ask me to marry him. So let me, let, let me give you that as a very strong piece of advice, ladies. Do not put your cards on the table. Don't let the man have the slightest reason to think that you are in love with him until he has told you very straight out that he loves you and then says, will you marry me? Now, I don't know what's happening in the so-called dating situation. Maybe there isn't any dating at all going on any place. I don't know. It's just chaos on most so-called Christian campuses. They're just like any secular university. I've heard from many people that Franciscan is a university unique, and I thank God for that. But there's an awful lot of confusion 
because of feminism. Men are afraid to be men for fear they will be called male chauvinists, and women are afraid to be feminine for fear they will be despised. We're all supposed to be equal and interchangeable and all this nonsense. So it has made some terrible confusion between men and women in this whole business of courtship. And women are getting on the phone and calling up guys, or if not doing anything quite that brazen, they're putting little smiley faces on their books in school, or they're standing outside the cl class where they know the man will be coming out the door, and they sort of happen to be there, and they breathe heavily down his neck, and uh, all sorts of things. Now, maybe I'm, maybe I don't need to say any of these things here. I hope that's true, but just for what it's worth. I want to read to you from an old writer just these encouraging words, which happened to be in a reading that was for July 28th. Thou openest thine hand and satisfiest the desire of every living thing. Then there's this little four-line poem. There's not a craving in the mind thou dost not meet and still. There's not a wish the heart can have, which thou dost not fulfill. You will see the truth about eternal life soon. I don't think it is possible to live up to the highest point of duty and of happiness without this. I know one can go on doing one's duty thoroughly under clouds of doubt, and even in complete unbelief. There are many who do, and they are dear to God. But the duty is done sadly, without the spring of life and joy that we are meant to have. That fountain of life and strength is hid in God. Christ showed us the way to it, and we get it into our souls when we utterly trust him and give up our hearts and our lives and our aspirations to him as to a faithful creator who will not leave unsatisfied any of the longings of the souls he has made, who will not let love die or disappoint finally the cravings for joy, for perfection, for light, and for knowledge that he has implanted, and that are parts of himself, immortal as he is. That passage is written by somebody named Annie Keary, and I think it's just an extrapolation of that word from the Psalms. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. And the other verse, delight thyself in the Lord, and he will give thee the desires of thine heart. Now, of course, I haven't got time to tell you about the five and a half years that ensued from that day in the park till our wedding day, which was in Quito, Ecuador. I had been working in the western jungle. Jim was working in the eastern jungle. We had the double cordilleras of the Andes between us. It took six weeks to get letters back and forth. By that time, we were writing to each other. But it wasn't until we had both been missionaries for about a year that Jim proposed to me. He felt that God did give him a green light because his jungle work obviously did not require that he remain single since the woman that he was in love with was doing exactly the same kind of work on the other side of the Andes, and he figured if she could do it by herself, she could do it as his wife. So don't ask me to tell you how I got to Ecuador. That's much too long a story, but... The verse that God gave to us on our wedding day was from Isaiah. Lo, this is our God. We have waited for him. And I want to testify 
that it was unspeakably worth the wait. Jim and I had made a rule for ourselves that we would not hold hands. Now, I'm not going to tell you that that's in the Bible, except there is a verse in 1 Corinthians 7 where Paul says it's good for a man not to touch a woman. And when I tell young people that that was our rule, they just look at me as if, well, what planet did you come from? You know, what <laughs> millennium did you come out of? And I say, okay, look, I'm not going to tell you that it's a sin to hold hands with a man. But I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. Is it any different holding hands with a very attractive big hunk that you think of as a potential husband? Is it any different holding hands with him and holding hands with your Uncle Joe or your grandmother or your priest? Is it different? And an honest woman is going to say it's very different. It's exciting. Okay, why is it exciting? Well, because God ordained that men and women should be attracted to each other and should want each other, should feel sexual hunger. And one tiniest touch of that person can send thrills and chills up your spine. Now, God ordained that you move from one touch to another touch to another kind of a touch, to another kind of a touch. You hold hands, the next thing you know, you're hugging. You hug, and then you kiss. And then you give one kind of a kiss, and then you give another kind of a kiss. And what happens? You end up in bed. And again and again, they have the same story. You know, I really don't know how it happened. I say it always happens the same way. <laughs> But, you know, we, we really didn't mean to. I mean, we just sort of, well, it just sort of happened. And I can guarantee, wherever you decide to draw the line in honesty before God, if you want to be holy, you draw the line there. But if you take my advice and draw the line where Jim and I drew it, I will guarantee absolutely, without any question, you will never get pregnant by mistake. lose your virginity. It couldn't possibly happen. So you say, well, I'm not going to draw the line there. I'm going to draw it over here. It might happen then, you know. I have files of letters full of stories like this. So you face this situation. You face your own sexual desires before God. I'm not going to stand here and tell you that God is going to give you a husband. I had no idea whether God was ever going to give me a husband or not. You can say to me, oh, well, all this stuff is easy for you to say because God has given you three husbands. Husband number two died of cancer after four years of marriage. My, Jim and I were married 27 months. Ad and I were married four years and eight months. Lars and I have been married 12 years, and he's feeling fine today, as far as I know. <laughs> But my mother gave me two rules about sex. She said, don't chase boys, keep them at arm's length. I followed my mother's rules. God has given me three husbands. But the point I'm making for you this afternoon 
is not that God's going to give you a husband. That's not the point. The point I want to make for you this afternoon is if you will surrender this area of purity and chastity and your gift of virginity to God, it will be safe. And God will give you what is good for you. No good thing, no good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. Now, walking uprightly means walking in holiness. God knows if marriage is a good thing for you. Now, figure it out, girls. I have been single far more years than I have been married. I'm 62 years old. So, when I was in the middle of the story that you can read in this book, I did not know that I was going to have a husband. So don't come up and say, well, yeah, it's easy for you to say, because I'm telling you what I was going through when I didn't know. And when Jim died, I figured, well, that does it. I thought it was a miracle I got married the first time. There'd be no possibility that anybody else would ever want to marry me. And when my second husband died, I thought, well, surely God couldn't possibly want to give me a third husband. I thought it was an unbelievable miracle a second time. And so you really don't know what God has up his sleeve. The question I want to end with is the one I began with. Do you want to be holy? Just the question that Jesus asked the man who had been sick for 38 years. Do you want to be made whole? And Jesus insisted upon the man's declaring his desire. Jesus knew his heart. Surely, if a man's been sick for 38 years and he comes to Jesus, what else would he ask for? But he had to state his deep desire. What did he do? He made excuses. Instead of saying, yes, I will be made whole, he started making excuses. And yet Jesus, in mercy, healed him anyway. But he's asking you this afternoon, how much do you love me? Am I the pearl of great price? What do you want more than anything else in the world? Will you be holy? God bless you. How does your husband now handle you talking about your true love with Jim Elliott on a constant basis? I believe my wife can testify to the fact that I often give her leading uh, questions or so on We're with a group that elicit stories about Jim and about her second husband, Ad Leach. He was from uh, Pittsburgh, and he was a Presbyterian uh, minister and uh, theologian. I often feel kind of sorry for the second husband because he doesn't really get mentioned very much. <laughs> He's on <laughs> He sort of just kind of passed over, and uh, someone, uh, I think this last week or the time before, we were out someplace, and somebody said, well, uh, has she written anything about you? And I said, well, not really. I said, and, and uh, he said, well, she ought to write about you. I said, well, I, I don't really uh, think she should, because she generally writes about husbands who are dead. 
And so, so. Well, she did write about me in uh, in an introduction to Love Has a Price Tag, I think, or there might be one chapter on that. But anyway, <laughs> I would. Uh, There's a story of short essays. I just assume uh, that she doesn't have to write about me in any length as far as the book. Uh, but I do enjoy. I enjoy hearing about him, and I would have liked to enjoy meeting him, I think, and we would have gotten along, I believe. Uh, we were completely different. Uh, we've got different gifts. The Lord has brought us together, and, and we work very nicely together. I do a lot of things that uh, my wife could never do. And so it has fitted in, and I don't... And, no one here has to worry about my self-image. There's no problem with that as far as me sitting in the back and my wife being up here. I just thoroughly enjoy it. And uh, I had one other thing to say, but I forgot. Oh, well, I get called Mr. Elliot, you know, sometimes. So, which, And depending, a lot of times I'll just answer and not say anything. Other times I'll just say, well, I'm, you know, Mr. Elliot the third. And, uh, really, I just remember the, the other thing I did want to say, be assured that we do go by Grimm at home and all, but certainly uh, when we're on the road, it's two names, but it's not that my wife has refused to take my name. She, her stationery, it's Mrs. Lars Grimm, and uh, that's what she goes by. And of course, it's one thing that having written, having written Let Me Be a Woman, should she ever do something that was improper in a wife and husband relationship, I can always flip up to page 136 and say, now, this is what you wrote. Yeah. You is that a question? Yeah. Yeah. I have to tell you this one little story. We were in Birmingham, Alabama, and I was speaking at a breakfast, and my husband Lars was there setting up the book table, and there was a little old lady setting place cards on the speaker's table. And he and she were chatting back and forth, and suddenly she stopped and she said, by the way, what's your name? And jokingly, he said, well, I'm an Elliot, too. And she said, oh, she said, are you the speaker's husband? And he said, yes. Well, she said, that's funny. I thought they told me the speaker's, the speaker's husband had a different name. And he said, well, that's really true. He said, my name is Gren, G-R-E-N. But he said, I am her third husband. And her face fell, and she said, oh my goodness, I've only got one place card. <laughs> and Lars said, well, I don't think you need to worry about the other two showing up. They're both dead. <laughs> and in all seriousness, she said, oh, well, then it'll be okay, won't it? <laughs> Can you imagine? Up until what point did you hold hands? Uh, we did not hold hands until we were engaged. And it was not until Jim asked me to marry him and I said yes, that we had the first kiss. I know, now wait a minute. Till 4.30. Okay, probably okay. have enough. Okay, well, zoom through. Um, I have talked to young women who have told me that they have made a covenant that they will not have a kiss until the wedding. And I applaud that. What can I say to a young man or woman who is lost in wrong and sexual relationships that would incline them to the Lord and away from sin? Obviously, you would say whatever you would say to 
try to make Jesus Christ attractive, if you can show people that the life of a Christian is not a life of repression and negation, but a life of pure joy. The purer the Christian, the purer is the joy that God gives. Now, of course, that brings us to the preaching of the cross. And as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, the preaching of the cross is foolishness to the world. In fact, he actually says the foolishness of God is wiser than men. So it takes a work of the Holy Spirit of God to enable somebody to see what that cross actually leads to. It isn't until we come in abject helplessness to the cross of Jesus that we then find that the cross transforms sorrow into joy, loss into gain, my sinfulness into Christ's righteousness, and death into life. So this is a very big question. You're not going to convince anybody that's not a Christian um, to come to the Lord and away from sin. You have to start with what it means to become a Christian. <coughs> okay, Lars says we have enough now to fill up the time. We may have more than enough, so... If you have another question, you've missed your chance. How do you respond to people that state to me, I can't believe you're still a virgin? I would just say, well, you better believe it. It's true. And if they think, well, you poor, benighted, misbegotten, misled, so-and-so, the truth probably is that deep down in their hearts, they are thinking, oh, if only I were still a virgin too. I really do believe that Almost everybody wants a virgin for a husband or wife. No matter what they've done themselves, they hope against hope that they may find somebody for whom they will be number one. Why shouldn't you save yourself for that person to whom God will give you so that you can be number one for him? You don't ever have to defend your Christian position. We Christians are people who affirm things by faith. We don't try to explain them. All the doctrines of the Christian faith are mysteries, aren't they? Mysteries are things which are revealed but not explained. Would you please spell Annie Keary? Yes, I'll be glad to. It's A-N-N-I-E and K-E-A-R-Y, I believe. That's right, K-E-A-R-Y. I have no idea who she is. This little book that I was reading from is just a selection of many different readings. I've never heard of her in any other context. Is it ever right for a woman to express her feeling for a man first? I think it's very unwise. And if you want to know why I feel so strongly about the roles of men and women, I would repeat that this is the book in which I have spelled those out most clearly. And the basic principle, the most profound truth on which everything else that can be said about the roles of the sexes is the mystery of Christ and the church. It says that the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is head of the church. Now Christ is the one who woos us, doesn't he? He is the one who calls us to himself, who loves us, who takes responsibility for us, 
who becomes our husband. He is the bridegroom, and the church is his bride. And he is responsible, and so he is the initiator. I believe that men were created to be initiators because they stand in the place of God in a very mysterious sense. And women are created to be the responders because we represent the mystery of the church. So this is the reason why the Catholic Church does not ordain women. I'll never forget when the Pope was visiting in this country and was attacked by vicious, angry females, feminists, who called him a sexist because he refuses to allow women to be ordained. And with great courtesy and gentleness, he said, the ordination of women has nothing to do with human rights. It's a question of the will of God. And that's all we can say. I cannot defend my position about men being initiators on any other basis. If it's cultural or if it's traditional, then we can discard it. But if it has something to do with the will of God, something that touches on a very deep mystery, we are in big trouble. We're skating on very thin ice when we start reversing the roles. What are the roles you feel that a man and woman have in a relationship? I think I have just said what I need to say on that briefly. Woman is to be the responder. Eve was made for Adam, not Adam for Eve. If I think I know God's will for my life, shouldn't I feel at peace about it? I don't want to be single, but I am for years. Will God give me a joy about it? I cannot guarantee that you're necessarily going to have peace in always in the will of God right away because we still have a nature in us that struggles against the will of God. If Paul the Apostle had problems, as he so clearly shows us in 1 Corinthians 7, um, then surely, um, excuse me, in Romans 7, then of course, you and I are going to have them too. He said, the good that I would, I do not. The evil that I would not, that I do. Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Just this struggle between fleshly desire and spiritual desire. So I would counsel this person to read my book, Loneliness, which goes into some depth in the matter of making an offering, material for sacrifice, my loneliness my sexual hunger, my desire for marriage and a man, making those a definite and deliberate and willed offering to God. And I do believe that God can transform those feelings into something beautiful. It doesn't mean that he will necessarily take that hunger away, but it gives you something to offer to him every time you think about it. Lars is telling me to go back to the question on the roles of men and women. Um, he wants me to make sure that you understand what I'm, that I'm not saying that a woman is a zero. When I say that a woman is a responder, that's a very different thing from being a zero. It takes one plus one to make two. It doesn't take one plus zero. In a dating relationship, that's a very touchy and dangerous area because you don't know whether you're actually moving toward marriage. But it seems to me to make sense for a Christian woman to behave with the kind of reserve and modesty and respect 
toward a man who is showing her special friendship and inviting her out on a date, just as she would to her husband. What was the verse from John? Goodness, I have no idea. I quoted a lot of verses here. It may have been, um, if you love me, keep my commandments. That's from John 14. And if you do this, then Jesus says, my Father will love you. Okay, John 14, verse 21. The man who has received my commands and obeys them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and disclose myself to him. When you say God gave you a verse, how did you know the verse was from God? God does not give me verses by giving me handwriting on the wall or voices or visions. I have never had any voices or visions. I've never had any miraculous means of guidance. But God does guide us and teach us through his word and through preaching and through other Christians. And I'm sure almost all of us have had the experience of having a special kind of a need and maybe a scripture verse or a hymn, a line from a song, a book that you're reading, or just a simple word spoken by another person becomes to you in that place of need the voice of God. That's what I mean. If I'm dying a thousand deaths over my love for Jim, and my reading that morning happens to be Psalm 8411, it is going to leap from the page. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. And so I realized on that particular day, my business is to walk uprightly. It's God's business to give me the good things. Elaborate on men and women aren't equal. Is one sex superior? Are men superior? Where's the Bible scripture? Please read these books. Much too big a question. But I've given you the basic reason, which is the mystery of Christ in the church. If the husband is the head of the wife, that doesn't mean he's worth more. Christ is subject to the Father. He submits himself to the will of the Father. But that does not mean that he is not God. As theologians tell us, the three persons of the Trinity are co-equal, consubstantial, and co-eternal. And even so, there is an order in the Trinity. The Holy Spirit witnesses to Christ, and Christ submits to the Father. So if you ever get hung up thinking, oh, well, if I submit to my husband, this means that I am admitting inferior worth, think about the Trinity. Do you know, do you have any children? Yes, I have one daughter. She was 10 months old when her father, Jim Elliott, was killed. So I was a widow after that until I was 42 years old. So I have never had any more children, but I do have three stepdaughters by husband number two, Addison Leach. My daughter, Valerie, has six children, so I'm very rich as a grandmother. I have already given my virginity away. I have regretted since and have felt guilty about it. How can I get rid of this guilt and get straight with the Lord? Certainly the first step is acknowledgement that you did the wrong thing. Confession. And the, the acceptance of the power of the blood of Jesus. We're told in 1 John, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just 
to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Another verse in that same book says, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. It doesn't say all except sexual sin. And as I said at the beginning, God is not going to give you back your virginity in the physical sense, but God can give you your chastity. If you really want to be holy, remember, the blood of Jesus will never lose its power. And once you have confessed your sins and put them under the blood of Jesus, remember, the Bible tells us that he casts our sins into the depths of the sea. Can you imagine trying to find something that has been thrown into the depths of the sea? And Corey Ten Boom added to that, and God puts up a sign, no fishing. <laughs> and you know, one of the devil's tactics is to throw up our past sins. He is determined that we are not going to receive God's forgiveness and God's mercy. He cannot bear it. And so again and again and again, he's going to come at you with the temptation, you big fake, you hypocrite, you didn't mean that, you didn't really confess your sins, and what would ever make you think God can forgive you for that? You did it deliberately, you knew better, he's not going to forgive you. Those are lies from Satan. Scripture tells us that Satan is a liar and the father of lies. Remember when Satan came to Jesus in the wilderness and tempted him? What was Jesus' response? Every single time he said, it is written. Jesus knew the scriptures. You've got to get yourself saturated with scripture. And there are hundreds of passages that tell us about forgiveness. Accept it. Believe that God means exactly what he says. Go to your priest. Ask him. He'll tell you the same story. It's the old, old story. Jim told you not to wait around for him, but what if he had asked you to wait around? Would you have done it? I would absolutely not have done it because he had no right to ask me to wait for him unless he was asking me to marry him. A man has no claim on a woman until he has asked her to marry him. And that is an important thing to remember, girls. I get letters from girls who have moved from New York to California because their boyfriend has moved out there and he's got a job out there and he wants her to come out there. And I said, don't ever rearrange your life for a man to whom you are not committed in marriage. And I better add this, once you have committed yourself to a man for marriage, you better rearrange your life every time it's necessary because you have accepted his destiny. So if he gets moved from Steubenville to Podunk, Iowa, and you've got a job in Steubenville, you quit your job and you go with your husband because Christ is the initiator. We accept his destiny when we accept him. A bride accepts the bridegroom's destiny. Now, I know I'm getting into very deep water here, and maybe some of you are getting your hackles up. All I can say is read these books. And her, the second part of her question was, is it wise to rearrange your plans if you are not engaged, your life plans? The answer is no, 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 no. Could you explain why it is necessary to abstain from physical contact before engagement as you and Jim did? I think I have done as well as I can on that. Also, how does this change, if at all, after engagement? When you are in a relationship before engagement and have had physical contact already, what should you do? I would say immediately stop. You can go out of this conference, talk to your boyfriend, and say, look, we've done it wrong. 
I have confessed my sin, we are, I have learned something, and we are going to start over. And if he doesn't like that, don't marry him. Don't stick with him. Any man who is a Christian should be willing to understand these principles. And the second part of the question, could you clarify or define sexual activity? And the Bible says refrain from sexual activity, so, so often people equate sexual activity with going all the way. I would say anything at all that arouses sexual desire and leads you into temptation is sexual activity. And there are a lot of people who are calling themselves virgins when technically they may be, but it's a very, very tiny technical point. And actually, they have, they have gone all the way. As Jesus said, if you look on a woman to lust after her, you have already committed adultery in your heart. And by that standard, can any of us say that we have not sinned? We have all sinned, probably, sexually, from that stand, if, according to that standard. But there is forgiveness for that, too. And we do have control over our wills. Just because a thought flits through your mind, that doesn't mean that you have sinned. Temptation is not sin. But when you put yourself in a position of temptation, deliberately, by physical contact, then you are playing with fire. You're skating on thin ice. And what did Paul say to the young Timothy? He said, flee youthful lusts. Get out of there. Run. Don't put yourself in that kind of a position. Don't get in the back seat of the car in a, on a dark night. Don't go to the man's dormitory room. Don't invite him to your apartment. You are putting yourself in a compromising position. In God's sight, there are a whole lot of things besides actual intercourse that surely would come under the heading of sexual sin. So may God give you a love for him which will override all other loves. May you know by the power of his Holy Spirit the expulsive power of a new affection so that your question will not be, can I do this, must I not do that? But your question will be, Lord, what can I do to be holy? God bless you. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms. <laughs>